Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Mike Winger, and today, well, today we're going to be getting into the topic of spiritual warfare as we continue uh, verse by verse through 1 Peter. And it's really in looking at this topic of spiritual warfare that we gain a new and fresh perspective on our lives that I think we really desperately need. So let's get started. Here we are uh, in 1 Peter. We're actually in chapter 2. Uh, verse 11 is where we're going to start. But I want to give you a little bit of a recap because we can sometimes get, especially as we're moving slowly through a book, we can some, sometimes lose the book in the book. Um, sometimes we don't see the forest through the trees, so to speak. So here's a, a brief little recap, slightly different than I've done before. And uh, Roman, uh, Romans, uh, First Peter 1 Peter 1.1, it says, To the pilgrims. And that's, that sets the tone for the whole book. It's our pilgrimage book. It's all about the fact that we have, we have a homeland, not of this world, that we're on our way there, and we're heading to our, our future glorious home. Um, we are not promised a comfortable life, but we are promised a glorious eternity. <laughs> you know, so, um, we are also told then in chapter 1 that we have a living hope. And then it gives all these reasons why that hope we have is alive. Our hope is alive because it's through the resurrection of Christ or because Christ is alive. So my hope's alive because he's alive. My hope is alive because it's secure. It, it cannot be shaken. It cannot be taken from me. It, it is not in question. Um, I wonder with retirement. Uh, yes, I'm thinking about retiring. <laughs> but I wonder with retirement... Um, Oh, if I invest in stocks, you know, stocks seem a little shaky to me. Like I, I see maybe you could diversify, put something in stocks, but don't put maybe everything in there because I'm not sure that that's entirely solid ground, you know, that, and then, but yet our, our retirement, so to speak, is secure in Christ. Um, it's also a living hope because it is such a wonderful hope. And we talked about how it's um, all these qualities. We looked at all these descriptors of our, of our future in heaven and really I think, fun to look at those things. Then it talks about how our hope is alive because even in trials, we're merely being refined. And that is very encouraging for those difficult times that we go through. Then it talks about our hope is alive because of the prophetic proof that shows that our hope is alive. So it seems like God targets like every aspect of our hope, you know, the, the intellectual foundation for our hope, the, the secure future of our hope, and then the great heartwarming impact of our, of our hope and present. And it kind of hits, whether you're the artist or the scientist or, the, or whatever you're, you are, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cover the bases, so to speak. Um, then in verse 13, our response to this hope is to gird up the loins of our mind and rest our hope fully upon that future grace, the grace that will be brought to us, to be fully rested upon a heavenly hope. So our hope in heaven then can affect the way we live on earth as we're fully rested in, in that future hope. I mean, I'm looking for, for heaven, and therefore I'm going to live differently on earth than if I was living as an atheist. There are some Christians that almost live as though um, they're stuck in the book of Ecclesiastes. Like, the, they're stuck in this sort of um, ignore eternity for this time. Because that book's almost like written from an atheist perspective, you know, to show the, the, um, the folly of it and the, and the, the valuelessness of everything in, the, in that worldview. But no, it should set my hope on heaven, which affects my life on earth. And therefore, like chapter 1, verse 14, it says we should not conform ourselves to the former lusts. Not only because of the, the hope we have looking forward, but also, and now it glances backward, because of our redemption. That we were, were redeemed from that aimless conduct. And so we should be living following Jesus Christ. It's, it's just our motives for following and serving Jesus Christ. Then it gets really real. 
<laughs> if that even means anything when I say that word twice in a row. Um, when it talks about love, uh, that we should be l- loving to one another, but chapter 2, verse 1 begins to tell us a description of love. Because we all agree, love, man, love, love, love. Just love each other, love each other. But then chapter 2, verse 1, it talks about, and here's love, laying aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. Okay, so that's pretty real about, about love. There's, there's love. Um, it's not just how I feel about someone, it's how I treat them. <laughs> that, would be, that would be more of a, of a biblical view of love. And then in verse 2, it tells us to desire the pure milk of the word, to long for God's word so that we can grow. I mean, this book is making us healthy Christians. That's the thing. This is like really getting us refocused on those sim- simple and deep truths to make us healthy. After telling us to grow in chapter 2, it tells us what we're growing into. That we're living stones. We're growing into a holy habitation or a holy home for God, like a, a temple for the Holy Spirit. And we're being growing, we're being built together into Christ ultimately, into our relationship with each other and our relationship with him, both individually and corporately. I mean, as we have corporate prayers, we just prayed for different issues. We here are, you know, joining together. Do you sense the fellowship of prayer? It's, it's, there's a beautiful thing there. Someone should do a study on that, the fellowship of prayer. Um, it sure is. So then it talked about how we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. And we went over those, each of those terms last week talking about uh, what they mean and, and how that applies to our lives. I love doing that. I love taking scriptures that people might just kind of, kind of breeze through and then unpacking and showing that it's like, a, forgive me for being a, a sci-fi nerd, but it's like when they open the, the TARDIS doors and the Doctor Who show and they go, it's bigger on the inside. And that's actually how scripture is. It's like when you, when you begin to look into the verse and study it, you're like, oh, it's bigger on the inside. As you explore and you, you discover that, oh, just, just how amazing it is and, and how much wealth of not just knowledge, or, but also wisdom and nourishment and protection and health, and just everything is, is right there in the word. It's, it's how we grow. So in chapter 2, verse 11, picking up here, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So again, the pilgrims comes up, sojourners comes up. It's rather surprising to me, though, how much of the New Testament is encouraging believers not to sin. That just that fact by itself kind of creates a, an observation in me. I go, oh, so much of the New Testament tells me, don't sin. Lay aside this and stop doing this and, and put aside this and never, no longer do these things and do these things instead. If sanctification were a guaranteed automatic process where I just, I begin following Jesus automatically, then I wouldn't need to be told all these things. Now, don't take that too far and think that sanctification doesn't have God's work in my life because it, it, there's something that begins at, at salvation and a cleansing that happens and my life begins to change and shift and a new conscience, but I still face a battle where I could yield to sin. And so I'm, I'm encouraged not to sin. So here's another one. And actually, he's begging us in this passage. Beloved, he calls him beloved. You are beloved of, of, of Peter or of God? Well, probably both. <laughs> We're greatly loved. And he says, I beg you, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And here's why he's begging, because the fleshly lusts, those desires of my flesh, they war against my soul. They are not innocent temptations. I'm not just curious. 
They're not just little indulgences. They are like insurgents here to wreck my life. That's what fleshly lusts are. We get an example of this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 6, where we see um, Cain experiencing that battle with temptation early on. And he's upset because his offering was rejected while Abel's was received. And in Genesis 4, 6, God says to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? He then tells him that sin lies at the door and its desire is for him, meaning to rule over him, but he should rule over it. So Cain, you're having a battle with sin right now. You have a temptation that's facing you. Its desire is to control you and take over. It's at the door, ready to come in and mess you up. You should rule over it. So that the idea here is that um, when Cain yields to the sin, the sin actually ends up coming in and taking over. We don't really get to control sin. (laughs) It's not the way it is. Um, we get to choose to walk in the spirit, but those who, who walk in the flesh, we find are actually slaves of sin, like Jesus said. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. In Galatians 5.17, it actually talks about our, our fleshly desires, our sin nature, and it describes it in, in other like battle type terms, you know, the wars against our soul. Well, Galatians 5.17 tells us that the, the flesh lusts against the spirit, that the desires of the flesh... That word lust just means desire. It doesn't just mean sexual sin. It just means desires. So the desires of my flesh are like angled against the spirit specifically. You know, you ever met someone like that? Like maybe when you were in school who was like, it's like you're just out to get me. You know, this person just seems to hate me. And I don't know why. It's like they just have desires to just cause me harm. And the, the, the sins of the flesh are angled against the spirit, like to harm the spirit. They war against your soul is the, is the idea. James 1 tells us that when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. And so it is a battle. It is a battle. Um, Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. And let's look real quick at another illustration of this. 2 Peter 2 verses 7 and 8. 2 Peter 2 verses 7 and 8. It says, speaking of Lot, Abraham's nephew, who he had decided to uh, make his home inside Las Vegas, I mean, um, Sodom. And, and so there he is living inside that city. And he's actually, I think that um, Sodom was worse than Las Vegas currently is, to be honest. Um, but he decides to make his home there. And it says, and, he, and, and God, uh, speaking of God, delivered righteous Lot, verse 7, who was oppressed, oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. The King James Version uses the word vexed. It vexed his soul. But the idea, this torment to his soul. So it wasn't just that they were like angry, so they were attacking him. He just, just being around their sins, it was like harm to his soul to just be in such close proximity to those who were doing such gross sins. This is, this is um, really interesting because just being near too close to the sin caused harm to him, even if he wasn't the one committing it. There are times where we as believers, we want to go out into the world and preach the gospel, but there's certain scenarios and situations where you just go, you know what, I just can't be part of that. I can't be, I can't go to that or I'm not going to be around that because it's just, that's like, you know, it's just harm to my soul and I don't want to be around that. But if, if just settling in Sodom is going to cause this kind of harm to your soul, 
then how much more committing sin? You know, actually engaging in it is war against your soul. We have forgiveness in Christ, but sin is there to make your Christian life as miserable as possible, (laughs) is the idea. I mean, Satan can't snatch you out of Jesus' hands, but he wants to make your ride as as unpleasant as can be, you know. So, um, so back over to First Peter. So we're to go against or uh, abstain from these fleshly desires. Now, I just want to point out that in the scriptures, the word flesh is used in different ways. Sometimes it says the flesh of beasts versus the flesh of this other thing, and it's literally they're just talking about material, like my arm. This is my flesh. But when we're talking about flesh as as it relates to sinful desires, it doesn't refer to my physical body. It's actually a term meaning um, all sort of ungodly desires and all ungodly sins and all that sort of thing. But it is not merely physical. I'll give you a scripture that that sort of, uh, a couple scriptures that help prove this to you. So turn to Galatians 5 verse 17. I want to show you that fleshly lusts, two things, they're not merely physical desires and they're not merely sexual desires. Those are two mistakes people often make because we, we tend to think of the word lust as sexual, but it's really not. It just means desire, strong desire. So the strong desires of that carnal nature. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit. We spoke about that. And the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. Like they're battling. And then he says this to Christians. So that you do not do the things that you wish. (laughs) I'm very comforted by that. (laughs) You mean I'm still saved? It's just, yeah, this is just the battle as a Christian. Sometimes you don't do the things you wish because of the battle that's going on with the flesh. Verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident or obvious. Here's what we mean by the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or anything else that's like that. He's, I mean, it's like he just rattled off this list of, of you know, oh yeah, sins of the flesh, yeah, brrr, yeah, and the other stuff like that. I mean, pretty much anything in this category, this is what we mean by the flesh, all that type of thing. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it starts with the works of the flesh, these things are evident, and it ends with, and the like. <laughs> so it's not a comprehensive list. It's just like a general, general, um, almost like it would be off the top of his head, although it was definitely inspired by the Spirit, just giving us this type of thing, carnal type thing. So flesh here is certainly not meaning physical desires. Therefore, when you eat breakfast, you are not walking in the flesh. Now that might seem really obvious to some people, but to others, it is not. Some people think that starvation is a holy thing. Now, fasting is something a little different. Starvation is not fasting. And fasting is a spiritual discipline that you don't do because eating is wrong, but you do it because you're simply trying to have self-discipline. You're trying to put off even the, even the time it takes to gather the food and consume the food and focus that time and energy on the Lord. Fasting is a beautiful, wonderful thing, but eating is not bad. Eating is not in and of itself bad. Um, there were people who were involved in asceticism. They were the ascetics, and they believed that basically anything that was of the physical was evil. So most of these asceticism groups die out because they deny 
couples the ability to procreate because that would be a pleasurable physical experience and therefore it's evil. And so not being able to produce children, they tend to die out. That's the one good thing about them. <laughs> but they believe in things like taking vows of poverty. Taking a vow of poverty, which is another way of saying making everyone else take care of me. <laughs> when you really think about it. Um, sleep deprivation. In fact, in the Middle Ages, there arose a group of people, a small group, thankfully, called pillar saints. Pillar saints. What did they do? Well, they climbed up onto a pillar, sat there in the middle of maybe a town square or some public area. They had to do it in, the pub in public for reasons that will become obvious. Then they would stay up there, maybe tie themselves down to it or something so that they wouldn't fall off. And they would sit there, maybe sitting Indian style or whatever, something like that. Um, they would not eat. They would not drink. They would not move from the place. And in fact, for them to survive, people had to put food on sticks and then bring it to them. Because this was the sacrifice they were making for the Lord. Which ends up being what appears to be a very pointless, worthless sacrifice. Where they're basically, almost, it seems arrogant to put yourself up in front of everybody. Like, look at me and how holy I am. Some of them would go to such lengths as to take their fist, uh, take their hand, tighten it into a fist, and then tie it down so that their fingernails, I, this is gross, but this is what they did, would grow into their hands to cause them constant pain and torment as a sacrifice unto the Lord. I'd be like, God doesn't, I mean, I, I know there's no verse that says this exactly, but I'm pretty sure God doesn't want stupid sacrifices. <laughs> Jesus was beaten for you, not so that you might injure yourself. You know what I mean? He took, it's his stripes that heal you, it's not yours. And there's no reason for us to do this. Even nowadays in the Philippines, every year in the Philippines, and other countries probably too, there are people who literally crucify themselves to commemorate Easter. And they'll see how long, they'll tie themselves usually to the cross and they'll stay there for a time. And, or people who carry those big crosses all over the place. And I just don't think this is the kind of sacrifice God has called us to do. I just don't see this example in the Bible. I don't want to come down against those individuals, but I definitely want to come against that practice and not let it propagate any more than it already has. Um, <clears throat> but that kind of uh, pillar saints, that kind of thing, I, I, if I was back then, I would want to just go up to the pillar saint and be like, hey, pillar saint, pillar saint Ted whatever his name is, I got a scripture for you. Yeah, it's from Paul's epistles. It says, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And then I just walk away and not give him any food. It'd be like, get off your pillar and go get a job. Like, that's what I tell the guy. Um, yeah, that's weird. But you see, it's, it's, it's when you attach physical desires to the term fleshly desires that you get all confused and end up wasting time. They, they should have been busy doing things for God, not upon a pillar. Um, I don't deny their heart, but I definitely deny their theology and their methodology about it. Um, so look at Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at one other scripture that I think proves, without, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that these bodily things are not necessarily evil. Um, that actually comes from more uh, mystic religions and stuff like that than anything else. Colossians 2 verse 20. <coughs> It says here, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, speaking usually of food or certain objects they were or were not supposed to touch, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed, and here's the, here's the hook, they have an appearance of wisdom 
in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Notice this, neglecting your body sometimes offers no value against the indulgence of the flesh, meaning that what? Your body and the flesh are two different things. So my body's not the flesh. When I'm like, man, it's hot. I really want to turn the AC on. They'd be like, deny the flesh, Mike. Okay, I'll do that with the AC on, though. <laughs> uh, this is not a carnal desire in, in the sense of sinful. It's just, you know, your body wants to go to bed at night. You're not sinning, okay? Don't feel like you have to repent for sleeping. Um, just for sleeping too much, I guess. <laughs> so there's a difference between the body and the flesh. Um, sin, though, is such a huge danger for us as, as Christians. It's still a very constant and real battle we're in. Um, Christians can commit all of the sins that are listed in walking in the flesh. It is possible for a believer to commit heinous sin. Um, so the only answer that Paul gives us, I mean, Peter gives us, excuse me, is in this passage where he says, abstain, abstain from these lusts. To abstain from something is to simply avoid it entirely. To, to completely deny it. I'm abstaining. You know, I abstained until marriage. You know what that means. That means only five or six times. That, no, that means, that means I abstained. This is what abstinence is. To abstain from the desires of the flesh is to look at sin and say, I will not cut back. I will not regulate it or diminish it or keep it only in this one area, but to have an attitude towards sin that says, I'm just no sin. No sin. That's my heart. That's my goal. That's my desire. Lord, is no sin in my life. Because if you let it in, you know, you let Satan get a foothold. He's like a, he's like a pro grappling wrestler, you know. You let him get a foothold, he's got a leg hold pretty soon. And before you know it, he's got a stronghold because that sin wars against your soul. It is after you. Um, so sin is not our friend and uh, it only pretends to be long enough to, to steal, kill, and destroy in our lives. Um, so to abstain is the only, the only solution, the only answer towards sinful desires is deny them completely. So maybe for me... Um, uh, like, I want to go to the gym, but I know that, that in my heart, it's, it's all for vanity. Like, I'm, I, it's, it's vanity, and it f- somehow it feeds not my physical health, that's a good thing, but it feeds a, a carnal thing in my life. So for me, maybe I shouldn't go to the gym, or maybe I should find some other alternative way of staying healthy, um, because this is going to feed my, my sin nature. Now, that may not apply to somebody else at all, but I know, I know me. I know my battle, you know. And uh, fortunately, I can go to the gym. But I remember there was a time when I couldn't because I just couldn't get it out of my head that I was, just, uh, so I, you know, if it's not a faith, it's sin. Just don't, you know, just honor the Lord and God will bless you. And, um, and, and without going to the gym for years, I mean, look. <laughs> you see the size of my muscles. It was like a miracle. <laughs> it's so big. No, I'm just playing. Um, okay, so we're also told uh, to be sojourners and pilgrims. These are two words that give two sides of meaning to us, sojourners and pilgrims. One of the things to know is I'm of God's kingdom. I'm not of this world's kingdom, which seems fairly obvious to anybody who pays any attention to the scriptures, that we're not of this kingdom. We're in but not of. That comes from John 17, if you ever hear that phrase, we're in but not of. That's actually just pieces of John chapter 17 pulled and put together where Jesus says he's sending us into the world, but we're not of the world. And... um, Absolutely, that's, that's the concept. I am not only not of this world, I'm of God's kingdom, but my time in this world is temporary, and that has to do 
with the other element. There's sojourners. I'm on my way to a new homeland. Um, uh, pilgrim, not in maybe some of the modern terms, the way we use the word sometimes, but pilgrim meaning that I'm only temporarily in the land I'm in. It, they're, they're both kind of held together with both those meanings. So I have a new homeland, and this is a temporary location for me. So, in other words, we're not settlers. We're not settlers. Christians are not settlers. This, this is not my home. There are those who are called um, uh, some amillennialists, but other ones are post-millennialists. And that term means they think that Jesus is coming back at the end of the millennial reign. I mean, he comes at the end of it. That's a post-millennial view. The thousand years. Except they don't think the thousand years are literal. It could be much longer. And they think that it has already begun. And that our, our job as Christians is to spread through the world and sort of take over the world for the Lord. And that things will not get worse. They'll get better and better and better until the nations are Christian, until the world, the one world religion is Christianity, and then Jesus comes into the kingdom that we've sort of prepared for him. If that, you follow me there? The problem with this mentality is it doesn't, I think, it doesn't fit the scriptures, but it also leads to some very dangerous stuff. Because if we're supposed to do that, well, then we're going to supposed to take over the nations. We're also supposed to take over their militaries. You know, it just starts to get a little weird. <laughs> and then I'm like, but wait a minute, Jesus, when you, when you came, you, you were like, hey, if my kingdom was of this world, you told the pilot, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. And this is why they don't fight. This is why I can fight in the military of a country, you know, as long as I think the cause is just. But I will not stand up put a cross on a shield and go out in the name of Jesus and slay the, the, the infidel. Cause I have to, yeah, <laughs> I have to violate scripture to do that. But yet that is some of the stuff that happened with um, some of the Catholic theology, especially in the middle ages when they, in a, around a thousand AD, they extended church authority just by dictate. They extended church authority over military and governments, all governments and militaries were supposed to submit to them. Um, they still believe that that's the case. They just don't practice it. Because um, probably because they can't. <laughs> I don't know. Um, hopefully, it wouldn't go like it did before. But anyway, but you see how how your view of whether we're sojourners or pilgrims can really affect different things, can really impact the way that you live your example in this world. So we're not settlers. I do not have to usher in God's kingdom. I want to rescue people for God's kingdom out of this world. That's my that's my task. Evangelism is my task, not establishing a big a big kingdom here. And the second thing here is that we don't want to have our roots too deep. Don't want to have your roots too deep down so that when the time comes to get out, we're ready to go. We have oil in our lamps, you know, we've girded up. We're ready to go. I'm ready, Lord. When you come, I'm ready to go. First John says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. Let me read it again. Do not love the world, but I love everybody. No, no, no. We're not talking here about individuals. We're talking about that world system. Do not love the world or the things in the world, the materialism. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So the term world here, meaning the sin-stained way of life that dominates the earth, that fleshly governed life. So we're not to be partakers with them, it says in Ephesians 5. So I don't want to love the world or be partakers with the world. It's too easy to be like that frog in the kettle. You know, they, they don't jump out if you throw them into a pot of, 
of uh, cold water and then slowly turn up the heat. But if you toss them into the boiling water, boop, they just jump right out. But they just can't tell because they're cold-blooded. Or so the story goes. I don't know. I've never experimented with frogs in this manner. I think that would be something I not, would not enjoy. But, <laughs> but so I've been told. And I think that we can be like that. You know, we, we, we don't want to be the, uh, the thermometer. We want to be the thermostat. The thermometer just adjusts itself to the temperature of the room and reports back. <laughs> this is the temperature you are. But the thermostat says, no, you're going to be this temperature. And that's how we come into the world. And we're like, I want to change the world around me, the individuals around me, so that they might be saved. I want to shine the light of Christ. But I'm not here to find the best way to fit in. <coughs> in fact, fitting in is impossible if you want to live godly for, for Jesus Christ. You, you will not fit in. If you find yourself totally fitting in, you've got to, you've got to really wonder, am I making a compromise here that allows me to fit in so well? Because the same people that hated Jesus love me. Hmm. Verse 12 says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a powerful verse. It says here that it's th- them speaking against you is a when, not an if. It's just, it's going to happen. Some people think that if they can just be nice enough, good enough, kind enough, gracious enough, loving enough, that the world will love them. And they labor for this. They, their ministries angle for the love of the world rather than for, uh, and I don't mean because they love people in the world, but for the world to love them. That, that's what they're going for. They justify their ministries by a letter they get from someone who's not saved, didn't get saved, still isn't saved, but they say, but you know what? You guys are all right by me. And they go, ha ha. Whatever we're doing must be working because this guy who didn't get saved thinks we're, thinks we're nice. But yet I have a feeling that some of the really great ministries out there are getting letters that aren't very nice at all. Some of the most loving people out there are getting responses that are not very kind or, or encouraging from individuals at all, just like Jesus did. It's a dream to get the world to love you. As long as you're light, the world will not love you. Excuse me. One verse that's really been sticking with me recently is John 7, 7, where Jesus said that the world hates him because he testifies of it that its works are evil. Because it it really jumped out to me as I was going through John uh, in the youth ministry on Sunday mornings. It really stood out to me that Jesus is saying not just that the world hated him, we always know that, but he's, he's giving the reason why. The world hates me, and he goes, because I love so much. The world hates me because I heal people and teach, you know, wonderful things. But rather, he says, the world hates me because it's, I mean, John 7, 7, he says, because I testify of it that its works are evil. That's why the world hates him. Because he's like, yeah, that's evil. And they're like, you know what? Why don't you stick to the love thing? Huh? Why don't you stick to being a nice guy and just love people and don't tell people that whether works are evil? But their works are evil. Light doesn't just get you warm. Light exposes you for what you are. And that's what Jesus does to us. And those who are willing to stand in that light exposed, they can receive the warmth of the love of Christ. In, In our country, in America, we've got all kinds of messed up stuff going on. It's just the reality of it. Abortion, murder is going on on a regular basis in our country. And they're fine with me talking about Jesus, but don't get specific about things that people are actually doing around you. But that's what Jesus did. He targeted those issues. 
He made a list of them and talked about them in the Sermon on the Mount. Abortion is murder. And that's going on in our culture and our society. And many Christians think it's okay. They're bonkers. I, I, they have no good justification for such uh, attitudes. Certainly not in the scripture where it says that we were made in the image of God. Before he formed us in the womb, he knew. There are those who, who think all sorts of very strange things. <laughs> and do some very strange things. That, as if all religions are equally the same and, and, and everybody's path is good. And... Um, I mean, uh, even even someone who you, normally you would you would quote with adoration, uh, Mother Teresa, she was asked as she goes out into the world to to bring food to the poor and help people and be be a, a humanitarian. Uh, she was mostly humanitarian more than anything else, and people loved that about her. Everybody loved Mother Teresa. Hmm, everybody. <laughs> and she said about um, they said, "What do you tell a, a, a Hindu when you meet a Hindu or a Muslim when you meet a Muslim? Do you try to convert them?" from their faith. And she goes, oh no, I just try to get them to be a better Hindu and a better Muslim. And I was like, oh, that's why they all like you so much. <laughs> because you don't do what Jesus would do at that point, at that particular area. And we love the humanitarian stuff. I'm not dogging that. The problem is what she left out. What she left out. And um, um, yeah. So <clears throat> we're told to have our conduct honorable because when they accuse us, because <laughs> it'll happen, and man, the church, the early church got accused. Let me give you a list of some of the things historically that really early first century, second century Christians were accused of. They were accused of cannibalism. A cannibalism because the um, the uh, the agape feast that they had, the, the, they they were like, oh, this is this is your body broken for us. This is your blood. And they were like, oh, cannibals. Misunderstanding, of course. Um, they were accused of killing and eating a child at their feasts. This is one of the accusations they got. They were also accused of immorality and even incest. This accusation took its rise from the fact that they called their feast an agape feast, a love feast. And so the, the pagans of the time took this to mean an orgy. And so they accused them of some sort of uh, immorality because of that. They were accused of damaging trade and damaging business wherever they went. Well, you can read about that in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, when Paul was basically ruining the business of the idol makers of Ephesus, and they, they started a riot trying to, to stop him because he was going to ruin their business. They were accused of breaking up families. And while it's true that when someone got saved, it could create a rift in the family, and families sometimes broke up, it wasn't that that was Christian teaching. Rather, um, for instance, in Mormon teaching, uh, I know firsthand from this because of friends I've had, where when, uh, when one person leaves the Mormon church, they try to bring them back, try to bring them back. But once they decide, okay, you're really apostate, you're really gone, they will tell the spouse who's still Mormon that you should leave your, your, uh, your husband or leave your wife. I've seen this happen multiple times uh, from people I know personally. Whereas the scripture says to the wife who has an unbelieving husband to stay with him if he is willing to stay to try to make it work and just honor God. And yes, it's going to be tough. And God has some wonderful words for those wives, but it's to try and make it work. So, so there isn't, you know, children are told to honor their parents. So it caused rifts, but rifts over Jesus, not, not rifts over uh, them abandoning their families or something like that. Um, they were also accused, Christians were accused, this is so funny how ironic it is, of turning slaves against their masters. Yet you read the scriptures, encouragement to those who were, who were slaves or bond servants. Slavery back then was very different than early America, so we shouldn't act like they're parallels because they're very much not. But Christianity did give of every man a new sense of worth and a new sense of dignity. 
and it said, and it has some wonderful things to say about the issue of slaves and slavery and masters and things like that. Some got us some words for masters, <laughs> um, but but uh, but no, it wasn't like rebel. It wasn't like that was the, the the straight up notion. They were also accused of hatred of mankind because they were told not to love the world. A misunderstanding, of course, of that. They were above all, above all, they were accused of being disloyal to Caesar because no Christian would worship the emperor's godhead and burn his pinch of incense and declare Caesar is Lord. For to him, Jesus Christ and nobody else was Lord. Yet if they would have given him that one concession, they would have found that Christians were their best citizens, told by their master to pay taxes. <laughs> you know, they would have found this, but but what's what's crazy is that these accusations are almost all of them completely off. They're false accusations. Here are some modern accusations that we get nowadays. You'll be familiar with some of these. We are accused of being homophobics and discriminating because we believe that homosexuality is a sin. That just believing it's a sin means you're a homophobe. Well, then that means that I'm like a liar phobe. And uh, I, think, I think incest is a sin, and probably so does the person talking to me and saying I'm a homophobe. But that means we're both incest phobes, however you would say that. Um, yeah, but anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a misunderstanding, of course. Um, we're accused of being judgmental and hateful because we teach that God hates sin and will judge it. However, our whole heart and desire is that people would be forgiven and repent and be saved. So how is that hateful and judgmental? Pardon me. We're accused of forcing our religion on others. Stop forcing your religion on me. I've been told this so many times through my life, usually on the internet or from a relative, <laughs> even though at the core of being a Christian is a personal choice that we believe nobody can force on you. It's a choice you make. The only thing we do is we just won't stop talking about it. But how is that forcing? It's like your buddy who just comes to you and they're like, oh man, what, what, what are you so happy about? Oh, it was a great game the other day. Man, stop forcing your sports on me. Gosh. We don't do this with anything else in life, you know, but no, we're forcing it on you. Of course not. We're just talking about it. In fact, most people are willing to go, okay, well, you know what? We stop. We don't go, oh, yeah, chokehold. You will hear me, you know. We don't do this. Uh, there is a religion that's forcing its beliefs on people right now. And if nothing else, it can serve as an illustration of what it looks like when someone forces their religion on you versus Christianity, where we're just like, want to come over here? You know, <laughs> we're just inviting people to believe in Christ. You know, it's so different. Um, we're accused of hating and oppressing women because we don't think men and women are identical. Well, they're not identical, but we're accused that that means we're hating and oppressing women, even though wherever the gospel has gone historically, women's rights have been elevated and lifted up higher and higher and higher. We are, we are given harsh warnings, husbands, against mistreating our wives. Harsh warnings. We'll get there actually later in First Peter. It says it'll mess up your prayers. God won't even hear your prayers because of it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we're also accused of being too narrow because Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. We're too narrow, whatever that means. I'm not even sure exactly what that means. I mean, the way is narrow, true, but there's a way. <laughs> too narrow would be you're all going to hell. Tough luck. That would be pretty narrow. But there's a way. And what is, well, what is this narrow way? Oh, you repent and believe. Yeah, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. 
Whereas other beliefs are, oh, yeah, you beat yourself daily and then you, you've got to like give all your money away and you've got to live this kind of thing. Da, 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 da. And anyways, um, yeah. <clears throat> We're accused of being foolish, ignorant, bigoted, backwater Americans. That's what we're accused of, from America. To the point that when they meet a loving, intelligent, godly believer, hopefully they wonder about those accusations. Hopefully we live such lives that shows these people that their accusations are baseless because those Romans who accused Christians of all that stuff back in the first century, they would have, if they knew a believer personally, they would have been like, they're not like that, you guys. That's a bunch of mis misrepresentations of Christianity. And hopefully a, someone who knows a believer personally looks at them and says, you know what, the world's got Christians wrong because I know this guy, I know you, and you're not like that. <clears throat> now, often they'll be like, well, you're just the exception to the rule. Well, if the believers you know are all exceptions to the rule, maybe the rule is wrong. <laughs> maybe the rule is wrong. And this is kind of the point. We want to make sure that the accusations of the world are baseless. That's the point of this passage, 1 Peter. We're in. Make sure the accusations of the world against us are baseless, that they, that they are false. Because they will come either way, but let's make sure they're false. Just like with Jesus, they accused him, but not of things he'd actually done. Of a twisted version of what happened, of a, of, of a fabricated thing altogether, possibly. <clears throat> then it's, there's this interesting phrase in verse 12. It says, they may, uh, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we know God wants them to be saved, but they may not glorify God by getting saved, seeing your example and, and getting saved. It's possible they will not glorify God until the day he comes and, they, and then we stood as witness and as a shining light in that life to say, I'm a believer, I'm real, I'm legit, I follow Jesus, I'm not a hypocrite, I'm not perfect, but here I am, following Jesus right in front of you. And then we will be that example that God could be like, see, I sent you my servants. I sent you my believers. And so then they will glorify God. Did you know this, that everyone will glorify God in the end? Even the unbelievers. Even Because God will be glorified even in judgment. And so in the end, that, they would be, that God would be glorified. Because God's glory is our, is our ultimate goal here. So I'm not living necessarily for the approval of the world because the approval of the world is not generally expected. But I am living to be a light to the world. So if I could put it this way, be a light, but don't let the world tell you how to be a light. Because their version of light is dark. Please, Christians, come and help us with humanitarian aid, but leave your gospel at the door. That is not being a light. I find it interesting that most of the humanitarian aid that the early church offered was to other believers, not to the world. Now, I'm down with it, though. I'm down with, you know, how to do, give out food and give out this stuff, but never at the expense of the gospel message. And if, a, if we were going to the edge of a country and I got all these supplies, and I'm like, hey, we're going to come in, we're going to provide all this stuff, I'm going to share Jesus, and they go, you have to leave Jesus at the door. And I go, well, well look, if, if, if my Savior is not welcome, then I'm not welcome. And how can I come? <clears throat> some people though um, as believers I think that what they do is they let the world tell us how to be a light they let the world tell them how to be a light they judge Christianity by worldly standards so that like say that if they were hanging out there with their friends at the mall or something and a Christian came up to hand them a tract they would look at their worldly friends they're hanging with to see if they thought the Christian did it right you know what I mean like and if they didn't if the worldly friends didn't respond well to the Christian then they conclude therefore you must have done something wrong because if you did it right, my worldly friends would like it. 
this may sound pretty pretty simplistic, but I but I've experienced this so much. I've seen this a lot. Um, and maybe someone who's like that is listening right now, uh, maybe even on a, on the internet. And I want to say, here's a, a little test for you. When you encounter a disagreement between, say, a worldly friend and a Christian friend, or a worldly friend and a, and a Christian principle or a biblical principle, do you tend to side with the world instead of with the scriptures? Do you like to use the phrase, devil's advocate, a lot? Do you enjoy that phrase? Is that like you're, you really like that phrase? I mean, you, well, I'm going to be devil's advocate a little bit here. I'm like, he doesn't need an advocate <laughs> ever. <laughs> do you feel more at home here than you do in heaven? Do you, you, you primarily think of heaven as all the things you're going to miss from earth? Do you think Jesus would rather fellowship with worldly people than with believers? I mean, is that really because I've met people with this opinion? I don't think Jesus would be hanging out at church. I think he'd be hanging out with me over at the bar. And I'm like, okay, Jesus spent time with sinners, tax collectors, but he did not party with them. He was outreaching to them. He didn't just go like, hey, uh, yeah, woo, wow, that's funny. Look, oh, look, you taught your six-year-old how to twerk. That's great. I think that's hilarious. No. Jesus didn't do any of that garbage. Jesus was righteous every moment of the day. And he outreached to the world, but he never uh, partied with them. And the party Jesus is, is not the biblical Jesus at all. Are you more concerned with the world approving of you than with believers approving of you? Are you more concerned with people liking you than them getting saved? Yeah, well, maybe my friends over the past 10 years haven't got saved, but they like me. I'm a Christian. They like, so mission accomplished. That's a bummer. That's a bummer. That's a, I think, go back to the Gospels. Read what Jesus did for yourself. And I, I think you guys are like, I'm preaching to the choir here, but read what Jesus did for yourself and, um, and ask yourself, if I was in this situation where they came and asked me what they just asked Jesus, what would I have said? And then read, read what Jesus says. Sometimes, I mean, Jesus, you think that he would, you're like, Jesus, you could have said a hundred other things that would have made, would have placated the crowd and made them follow you still and like you better. But it's like you purposely threw your own self under the bus in the, in your, in your, in their eyes. Sometimes you responded to people by calling them names. Now I don't do this and I don't think I would have the wisdom to know when <laughs> it was appropriate, but, but I mean, read what Jesus said and be like, wow, look, look at how he responded to those people. He just like straight up gets in their face. And then someone else, he's just like, oh, total grace. And I think he gave, he gave uh, law to the proud and grace to the humble, you know, is the general principle that he gave. But he, he didn't look for their approval. He looked for, uh, to shine light into their lives. Now, this doesn't mean that I should be ignorant or uncaring about how I'm perceived by others. I don't want to be uncaring about how I'm perceived. I just want to make sure that it's not their approval I'm after. It's rightly representing Christ that I'm after. That's what I'm after. I, I, I don't. So if they don't approve it, it's irrelevant. It may hurt my heart, you know, but it's 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 not relevant. It's did I honor Christ? That's what mattered. So to have my conduct honorable um, amongst the Gentiles in in love and in holiness. Um, I, I like that word honorable because it's it's a it's an interesting word. It's in the Greek. It's not the word like hagias, which means holy. It's another word that implies not only goodness, moral quality, but goodness in like. Um, uh, Oh, like, like mm, that was good kind of a quality, you know, like when you eat some good food. Um, so that I want to not only be 
right in my words, but right in my behaviors, in my attitude, and in that sort of side. So it really balances this out for me. So I'm not going after the world's approval, but can I say this? I'm not going after their disapproval either. I'm not just like get in your face and not care what you what you uh, what you see coming from me. I want to be morally good, but I also want to be sort of attractive in my character to others, a, a sort of winsome, loving attitude. Um, that this is hopefully what I'm going to be able to portray. I like what Micah six eight says, right? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. I'm going to do what is right, love mercy, extend mercy to others, and I'm going to just walk humbly. And when you add humility to someone who's willing to boldly shine the light, and then they add humility to that, they've got like the perfect sandwich, so to speak. You've got like, this is, this is the right representation, I think, of Jesus right there. Um, morally good, but with a sense of humility. Um, now this is going to begin, we're going to stop here tonight, but this is going to begin a new section. And what, what he's going to do is he, he just said living honorably among the Gentiles. Now that this implies that you are living a life, not in a monastery, right? You can't live anyway among the Gentiles. If you're meaning non-believers, if you are not among them. <laughs> and so we don't want to be sort of like us four and no more like, Oh, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't contact. I rather, I want to be out in the world. I want to look at every opportunity to share and stuff. Um, but then he's going to get into this issue of submission. You see it in verse 13. Therefore, submit. And um, so we're going to be getting into these various areas of submission. Areas of submission with government, um, in marriage, in, uh, in, in employment, and ultimately how it all connects to submitting to God. And so I'm, I'm actually looking forward to that because studying what the scripture says about submission has really changed um, my attitude towards government, among other things, um, because all of us are required to submit as unto the Lord. So let's, um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for uh, this encouragement, Lord, about what it means to be a light to the world and to, to live honorably and have good conduct and all that sort of stuff. Lord, we just pray that we would be able to take it home and actually apply it. The next time we're confronted with a moment where maybe we might get aggravated with somebody, may we love mercy where perhaps um, in order to get their approval, we would need to compromise some biblical truth, may we do justly. And where maybe, Lord, we would be um, adding our offense to the offense of the gospel. We don't want to add our offense, Lord. May we walk humbly so that if the world um, accuses or rejects, misrepresents or whatever, that it's not because of us. It's because of your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for thinking biblically with me today. I'm Mike Winger, and next time we're going to ask the question, when should a Christian rebel against the government? And I'm just going to deal very openly and honestly with my understanding of the text and how we take this into difficult situations when rebellion seems to be called for. So we'll pick up there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17 next time. And until then, don't forget to check the context. <laughs>